Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr Louise Kugler and today I'm honoured to be talking to Dr Catherine Mannix about death and dying and the taboos associated with what is an inevitable part of everybody's life. Catherine is a palliative care physician, a qualified cognitive behavioural therapist and is an award-winning author of the thought-provoking book With the End in Mind. Welcome Catherine. Thank you very much. Today I am hoping that this podcast will provide a starting conversation about death and dying to better prepare us as health professionals to normalise the process of dying again and to enable our patients and their family to speak openly, to enable planning discussions and for them to no longer fear death and its process. Catherine, there are two things that are certain in life. Firstly, we will be born and secondly, we will die. Why is it that we have positive associations? We plan and we celebrate birth, but when it comes to dying, the opposite is true. Mm, it's thought-provoking, isn't it? And I guess the easy answer is that waiting for a baby to be born is the beginning of something, and it's usually something joyful. And yet, I think it's interesting that it's the fact that there will be a day that is our death day, as well as the day that's our birthday. It's the fact of being mortal that makes it special and precious to be alive in the first place. And I think it's really helpful to think about how we prepare for a birth when you think about how we might prepare for a death. And in particular, the idea that once you've had a positive pregnancy test, the whole of the pregnant woman's life becomes about the birth day, the labour day and making sure that everything's prepared so that she and the baby have the best possible labour and the safest possible start to the baby's life. And we do that by giving good antenatal care so that by the time she gets into labour, we know where the placenta is and which way around the baby is and what the relative size of the baby's head and the mother's pelvis are, all of those things so that the labour can be enabled to progress in the way it's going to progress and then supported if it needs to be medically supported, which very often it doesn't need to be. So when you think about dying a bit like that, maybe there's not the equivalent of a positive pregnancy test. For some people, it's just a recognition that frailty and old age is making it likely that we might not survive for many more years. But sometimes it is the diagnosis of a, of a fatal illness, isn't it? There will be a death day, whether or not you've got a diagnosis before that. And doing a period of antenatal care in, in terms of getting ready for dying is the way to line us up so that the process of dying, just like the process of being born, can happen in its natural way, but may need to be medically supported. So just thinking, for example, the, the process of giving birth is usually not terribly comfortable for the mother involved. It's probably not very comfortable for the baby either if it's a vaginal delivery, is it, mm. to get your head so squashed? It's not gonna be a comfortable thing. Whereas the process of dying actually doesn't give you pain or make you feel breathless or actually have any symptoms other than encroaching drowsiness. But because we will be dying of something, it's likely that we'll have symptoms of that condition. Mm. So that preparation period can be about good palliation of those symptoms. 
which very often is something that is going to be addressed by your community care team, general practitioner, district nurse. It might be that you need some specialist input with heart failure, for example. Maybe you need the cardiologist to be doing some tweaking of some of those complicated drugs they use. Um, or maybe it's more complicated and you need palliative care specialists involved as well, but not instead of everybody else. But if the symptoms are well managed as you're approaching death day, then they're not going to suddenly escape during the dying. So then we've got the opportunity to die comfortably with the right people in the room around us as, as our supporters in the same way as we have a birth partner and a midwife around us giving birth. I think the parallels are really interesting and I think perhaps if we can help people who are thinking about dying but don't know how to think about it, to use that parallel with mm. getting ready for a birth, it kind of takes the sting out of it a little bit to be able to have a, a sensible discussion about it. There's a language that's evolved around dying, passing on, lost the battle. Why has it become taboo to discuss death and dying? And what suggestions do you have to reclaim the language of death and dying? I was really hoping that New Zealanders were going to be very pragmatic and the D words would just be used over here. And I've been in three taxis now and New Zealand taxi drivers like to know why you're in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. So I've been telling them and immediately they've told me their family death stories, of course, and everybody has talked about passing away. And oh, New Zealand, I'm disappointed in you. I thought you'd be better than that. What's it about? Is it about that if we say it, it makes it more real? I think partly it's that. But one of the things that concerns me is that, and I'm sure you've had this experience as well, we're talking to a person who's very sick or you're talking to a recently bereaved person. You know them well enough that you can have a conversation that may indeed involve using the words dying or, you know, I'm really sorry about to hear that your husband died. And when you're talking to that person, that transaction is okay. You're using that word. They're hearing that word. It's not startling them. You both know what you're talking about. But if you do that socially, there'll be somebody else who isn't part of that transaction who'll mm. come afterwards and say, I didn't think it was very sensitive of you to use the word death in front of Louise when her mm. dad has just died. And there's a kind of thought police thing starting to happen. So we're policing each other's language and we're telling each other what it's not okay to say. Mm. So there's a social pressure, I think, to avoid those words. But if we don't have the words, how do we describe the process? Mm. How do we help people to get themselves ready for it? So I think there's something about us being able to talk about dying and death, perhaps as healthcare professionals, but also as just members of a community. And to be able to say those words in exactly the same tone of voice that you would use if you were, you know, ordering vegetables in a restaurant, mm. that they're simply words that we use to describe particular parts of the human experience. And obviously we need to use them with tenderness and kindness when we're talking to people where it really emotionally matters. But one of my experiences in hospital palliative care is that I meet families who don't realise that their relative is dying because they've only been told that the relative is very seriously ill, for example. And until you actually use the D words, they don't start to make the phone calls that get the right people there or 
manage the things that they want to say. And, you know, that awful thing when you see families after somebody's died and they haven't realised if only somebody had told us. Mm. So I think they're really precious words. We mustn't let them get lost. Mm, some excellent points there. Mm, thank you. You talked about a process and the process of dying is predictable and follows certain patterns. How does discussing this with patients and their families help? And what is your narrative? How do you do this? Okay, that's, I, I think that's a really interesting question. So I first heard dying described as a process when I'd been qualified as a doctor for, for, for nearly five years. So I think that's fascinating. I'd spent five years at medical school, I'd spent five years in practice, and I hadn't heard a process of dying described. And I just started working in a hospice and my consultant took me to talk to a lady who was frightened about her pain overwhelming her at the very end of her life. And the reason she was frightened of that was she wasn't really frightened about the pain. She was frightened that if she despaired because of her pain, that she would end up in some way separated for eternity from her husband who'd already died. So this was a really, really profound kind of spiritual metaphysical belief that she had and understanding how dying was going to happen was really important for her. And he described to her the process that her body would go through, what she would experience on the way towards dying, which I'll talk about in a bit more detail in a moment. The thing that was amazing for me as that junior doctor was that I'd worked in um, a very busy haematology service in the, in the days when we didn't have the success in managing leukaemias that we have now, and then in the regional cancer centre. So I'd seen probably several hundred deaths mm. by then. But actually I'd been the doctor who'd been trying to stop people dying. And I hadn't appreciated the common factors that were happening to all of those people because for each person I was thinking about what their blood pressure was doing and what their heart rate was doing and what their blood oxygen levels were doing and I hadn't stood back to see the process. And as he described this process to her with me thinking this is a really weird thing to do, I could see her relaxing, I could see her leaning forwards to listen to him, it was, you know, she was thrilled almost to be hearing a truth that she could identify with mm. and at the end she was so much more relaxed for having had a description of dying right up to her last breath given to her and at the very beginning my boss had said to her you know if this is too much I'll stop you just tell me and I promise I'll stop and she never asked him to stop and I realised as he was describing it that he was describing something that I had seen hundreds of times but had never really seen, mm. never really put it together. And that peace of mind that she had at the end absolutely blew my mind. So I guess my script now for talking to people about it grew from listening to his beautiful description of it. So what I would normally say to people is, first of all, that it's interesting that it doesn't really matter what we're dying from. Towards the end of our lives, all illnesses seem to affect us in a very similar way, which is a huge and irreversible loss of energy. And because we're much more tired, 
we need to recharge our batteries in some way. And it doesn't seem that eating or, or drinking particularly helps with that. It's sleeping that really helps with that. And anybody who's ever had an episode of flu will know that when we're really seriously ill, we sleep. Then we have those short periods of being awake enough to possibly have a cup of tea or make sure your kids have done their homework. And then you just can't resist going back to sleep again. So it's that kind of thing. And as time goes by, what we observe in people approaching the end of their lives is that the periods of being asleep get longer and the periods of being awake get shorter. But provided their illness isn't affecting their mind or their brain, when they're awake, they're still their normal selves. And then an interesting change happens at some point, which is that during those episodes of sleep, people become unconscious for a period of time they lapse into a coma and they don't seem to realize that that's happened they wake up and they tell us they've had a nice sleep but we've needed to try and wake them for something maybe it's been medicine time or visitor or something like that and they have been too unconscious for us to rouse them so at that point you would know that this person is going to be intermittently unconscious now and if they can't take their painkillers for example or their nausea control drugs you wouldn't want them to wake up from a period of unconsciousness having missed their pills with their pain or their nausea having come back. So we switch their way we give their drugs at that point. And very often we'll just use injections or syringe drivers at that point in time. And so this process continues of being awake, being asleep, being unconscious, but not conscious of being unconscious until at the very end of somebody's life, they are just unconscious all of the time. Now that's a really interesting thing because we can't know what the experience is of people who are unconscious. Our only experience is of people who've been unconscious and regained consciousness, usually people who've had some kind of traumatic thing happen to them. Um, so we know from people who've been in intensive care units, deeply unconscious, that they've heard the voices of people who visited them, they know who've who's been in. So we have reason to believe, but we can't prove it, that people continue to hear, even if they don't really make sense of what they're hearing. And so we encourage families to keep talking to people at that stage. And the other thing that happens with people who are deeply unconscious is that their breathing now goes into an automatic cycle. And that's really important for families to know about, because if they don't understand it, they misconstrue what's going on. So the breathing cycle is this movement between fast breathing and slow breathing and between deep breathing and shallow breathing. And as those cycles change, people might be breathing very deeply and be making a noise, par partly because their vocal cords sometimes are a, a little bit constricted. And that person is deeply, deeply unconscious, but if they're making a noise and you didn't know better, you could think that they were having pain. So it's really important that the family understand that this kind of breathing tells me that your dad is deeply unconscious and he won't be feeling pain, but that is a peculiar noise, isn't it? I am hearing it with you. And then other phases in the breathing cycle, it can be quite shallow and panty sounding. And if you didn't know better, you might think the person was breathless. So again, really important to be able to be there with the family and narrate it as we're going along. 
And then the very, very last breaths are usually during one of those phases of slow breathing where it just becomes progressively more shallow, often with big long spaces between the breaths. And then eventually there'll be a breath out that just isn't followed by another breath in. So gentle, in fact, that I've walked into rooms where that's happened and the families haven't actually noticed that it's happened yet, which is always an amazing thing. But that enables me to be able to say to a patient who's trusted us to be able to have this conversation that if your family around your bed, they're not going to see something terrible. They're not going to see you groaning. They're not going to see you having an awful time. They're going to see you being very peaceful, maybe a little bit noisy, maybe making funny noises with your breathing, but it shouldn't frighten them. We can't stop it from being sad, but it shouldn't be something that's really frightening for them. So going back to our discussion about the parallel between birth and death, when you're pregnant, your midwife talks to you about what labour is going to be like. And then when you're in labour, your midwife reminds you that you've already discussed that. And what it actually feels like isn't what you thought it was going to feel like when she was describing it when it's your first baby. Maybe as people who are companions to people who are dying, I don't know what we call those, are they going to be death wives? I don't really know. We should be preparing people for what the experience will be on the day. And then we may have to remind families in particular that we've talked about the breathing and we've talked about the noises. And this is that thing that we talked about happening now. So that they're not hearing it for the first time, that we're reminding people. And I suspect that a hundred years ago, everybody recognised that. Death happened at home. We were less able to rescue people with medical technology from dying. And in medicine becoming so much more clever and so much more accomplished, with so much to celebrate, one of the unforeseen losses has been familiarity with normal dying and being around a deathbed. But also, of course, we're better now at symptom control. So a hundred years ago, it would have been much more likely to see somebody dying who was not comfortable. But if we get symptoms sorted now in the run-up to those last few days of life, it's unlikely that symptoms are going to escape again at that point. Thank you. So Catherine, we've talked about your narrative, but so often we see patients ending up in hospital or hospice because their families haven't coped. Mm. What can we do better? It's about people feeling they've got some choice and some control, isn't it? And it's about planning ahead. So I suspect if people know what to expect, they then can make plans in a more informed and sensible sort of way. So if I think that I'm going to have to spend only a couple of weeks bed bound at the end of my life, well, maybe I can manage that in my house. Maybe I can go and live with my daughter for two or three weeks. But if my daughter's trying to bring up four children and I'm going to be unwell and needing her to be running around to my house for eight weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, that's possibly not sustainable for her no matter how much I want it. So there's something about being really honest and planning and then also making plan B. So a little bit like birth plans, um, where, you know, I'm not going to have having no drugs and no knives anywhere near me and it's all going to be natural. And lots of people who've never had a baby 
make that kind of plan for their first pregnancy. Many people who've had a baby don't make a plan like that ever again for subsequent pregnancies. So we learn from our experience. We don't get to learn from the experience of dying to do it differently the next time, but we can use the community wisdom, can't we? So I'd really like to be at home in my bed. Um, but if circumstances change so that that can't be what happens, then um, I quite like the idea of the hospice. I really don't want to go into Ward 16 at such and such a hospital, but I'll go in any other ward. Um, maybe my daughter won't be able to manage because she's got too many stairs in her house, but my best friend says I can go and live with her. It's about thinking through sensibly. And I've had lots of patients who said to me, oh, well, I, you know, my daughter will look after me. Um, and it's an assumption people make, isn't it, without really thinking through what it is that we're asking of families. Now, also it's part of um, what is a family's tradition. So you've got different communities in New Zealand and certainly it's a strong part of the Maori tradition, isn't it, for families to participate in looking after people at the ends of their lives. Um, and I, I worry that if we don't make a plan B, if there's a societal expectation that we will succeed in doing it at home, then we have families feeling that somehow they've let the dying person down and they've let each other down if they weren't able to sustain that at home. So there's something about having a backup plan, but also making sure everybody knows so that um, famously uh, we, we talk in Britain about the family who arrives from the other side of the world. We don't point the finger at New Zealanders particularly, but the person who wasn't there when the planning was going on, who walks in and says, oh, this is absolutely terrible. What's happening to mum? This is awful. Get an ambulance now. And all that careful planning gets wrong-footed because somebody who's a really important part of that family jigsaw isn't aware of the plan. So making the plan explicit, writing the plan down, emailing the plan to the members of the family who aren't around. Mm. I think we've got to get savvy, we've got to use technology, we've got to make sure that everybody knows. And we've got to make sure that everybody's got a chance to say, do you know what, I don't think I'm comfortable with that. I don't, I don't think that I will be able to help my dad on and off a commode at home, for mm. example, and that it's okay to say that. We've got to give people permission, haven't we, mm. to, to say what they can do, but also to say what is just going to be too much for them to do. Yeah, some excellent points, thank you. Now you've experienced death of somebody close to you. How did that affect you and has it changed your practice as a clinician? So I've had bereavements now of several people who are very, very dear to me. I think it made it difficult at work for a little while to go back and work in a palliative care setting, particularly. We work in teams and so my team was really, really good and I was able to say I, I would struggle to see, for example, uh, elderly ladies are going to be a bit too hard for me over the next few weeks while I just grieve this particular loss in my own life. But I think it's made me a more enriched practitioner. I think it's quite important that we understand that our pain is about our loss and that other people will feel a different pain about their loss. But I don't think I'd realised until my first close bereavement how very physical the symptoms of bereavement are. Mm. So I suspect that I'm a 
a wiser practitioner, but it hurts me more. And I suppose the whole of life is like that, isn't it? When you're a medical student and you're young and invincible, um, you perhaps are not as sensitive at the bedside of somebody who's 80 mm. as you might be when you're approaching retirement and you know, you've had two generations of your family go through the stage of being 80. So I think being at work when we're grieving is a difficult thing for anybody to do, but it's perhaps more difficult when um, your day job faces you with other people in the same situation. But I think it helps us to be better humans in the end. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. It can be difficult to start a conversation about dying, encouraging your patients to say, I love you, I'm sorry, thank you, or I forgive you, are often very important. You've devised a letter template that you encourage your people and patients to use. Tell us about this. That was um, something that came from reading uh, the work of Ira Bayek, who's a palliative care physician in the United States, who has also pondered on this pattern of the important things that people want to say. Um, And I think the first time I'd realised about the pattern was uh, after the Twin Towers incident um, on the 11th of September, when so many people made phone calls home before we've got the technology that we have now. So they were using office phones and landlines. And it was the working day down the eastern seaboard of America. So they were phoning home and they were getting the tapes on their home phones. And then over the next week or so, those things were being played on the news. And what people were saying was, I love you. Don't forget that I love you. And it struck me that that's really interesting. I hear that at work every day, every single day. I hear families at the edge of somebody's life, reminding each other of that love, being thankful to each other, seeking forgiveness and reconciliation. And I thought that it was part of the gift of approaching death gently with a kind of palliative care phase. And it completely opened my eyes when those people who had been fit and well and come to work that morning now found themselves facing a horrible death. And what they wanted to do was just reach out in love to the people who mattered to them. It really struck me. So then when I read Ira Bayek's work, I thought he's describing exactly the same phenomenon here. So one of the things that I wanted to do in the book was to help people to think about, if I could talk to you now, what would I want to thank you for? Or what might I need to apologise to you for or offer you my forgiveness for? And what are the things about you that I've always really appreciated and loved about you, but perhaps I've been a little bit too reticent to say it. So the book included a a, a letter template. And the first time the the printers drew it all up, it was too tiny. It It was all squished into one page. And I asked them to do it sideways across two pages so that you could lie the book down, flatten the seam and photocopy it out as a single sheet of paper. And I think they thought I was a bit daft. I don't think I think that people are going to use it as a template, although in fact some people have for writing. But I think if it gives you those first sentences of 
one of the things I've always really appreciated about you is um, one of the things I regret is um, and please don't worry about and then there's a blank and this is why you shouldn't worry about it it might just help people to frame in words things that they're feeling as feelings but they're finding it difficult to articulate so I've had some lovely feedback from readers who've been able to think through that template in order to have conversations that have been very meaningful to them but also some people who have actually printed it out and written it and so I'm really glad now I felt I was being a bit fussy with the printer <laughs> when they first sent it in but it seems to have been a really worthwhile exercise. Mm. That sounds absolutely lovely. Mm. Um, in New Zealand we're asked to fill in advanced care plans and many clinicians are reluctant to do this as they fear it may disturb their relationships with their patients. What are your thoughts on this? I can understand the reticence. It's a little bit like a really big D word that you're going to have mm. to say out loud, isn't it? I think there's something, though, about having done it once and discovering that the world didn't end and the patient didn't flounce out of your office saying, I can't believe that you want to talk to me about that. It's such a relief to people when it's out in the open. The idea of advanced care planning, of course, is not an event, is it? It's a process. Mm. And it's great to have a form that helps us to make sure that we've thought of all of the bits of the process. It's a bit like a shopping list. Um, but I think if we see it as, oh, right, I've got to fill this form in with you now and we've got 10 minutes, that's really not going to be a helpful conversation, is it? Whereas, okay, here are some things that we're going to need to think about over the next week or so. Maybe what I'll do is give you the major headings so that you can have a think about it. You might want to talk to your family about it. This is what the form that I'm going to fill in looks like. Do you want to take it away? Do you want to talk to your family about it? So that eventually what we're doing is collaborating because as your as your medical advisor or as your nurse what I want to do is capture what it is that you want but I need to know that you're making that plan understanding the way your condition is likely to progress and it might be that in three months time things are different and we need to to change it again so I think having I think the process and the conversation is probably more important than the piece of paper but because increasingly we don't see the same doctor each time or we don't see the same nurse each time having a piece of paper that reminds everybody what the plan is is a helpful thing but I think it's the process of the planning rather than the fact of the piece of paper that's the most useful thing so you were, you were saying about getting into the conversation and that can be really tricky can't it one of the things that I have found really useful, and I, I got lots of phrases that I use. Some of them I can remember who I stole them from, but this one I can't, but almost certainly I didn't think of it. I just stole it from somebody else. Is that when you're thinking about the future, um, I meet a lot of people who have a kind of worse dread about the way things are going to go, but most people have a best hope as well. So I'd be really interested to know what's your worst dread and what is your best hope and how can we try and get what's going to happen to you to look 
much more like your best hope than it looks like your worst dread. Mm. And that seems to be a, a kind of door opening conversation for people. And it means that you can pick it up again next time. So last time I was here, we were talking about your worst dread, but we talked about your best hope a bit. And this time I'd like to talk a bit more about your best hope, if that's okay. And it's really helpful rescue as well to be able to say, well, even though we're going to talk about this difficult, dark thing that you don't like to talk about, we both know you've got a best hope as well. And we will finish by talking about that. And it kind of leaves the consultation in a more upbeat place. Mm. Absolutely brilliant points. Thank you very much. So to conclude our podcast today, do you have some take-home messages for our listeners? I think one of the things that I found most useful as a, as a practitioner of palliative care is how very, very helpful it is for people to understand the process of dying, how very relieved they are that we've been so frank, we've been so honest, they're left with a sense that actually there are no secrets, it's not that there's some medical thing that I know that they don't know. And that because the process is understandable and can be described, they can then go on and talk to their families about that. Um, Very often when I've described it, the first thing that somebody will say is, will you tell that to my wife? Or will you help me explain that to my kids? And I think that's a really, really important thing. I think it's really helpful to have a model script to use. Not so that you say it as though it's a script, but so that you remember to think about how this person's condition is going to affect them as their, um, as their life is starting to ebb. And then what is the sequence of events to think about, to remember to talk about breathing changes so that you can remind people later. Uh, to remember to talk to people about getting their symptom management tight early on and not to be afraid of taking symptom management drugs Um, so that we're talking to people early and then we're reinforcing the same message over and over. And if you don't have a script for describing dying, I think it's really useful to acquire one. Mine is acquired from having watched my first boss and then refined Anybody who wants to take mine, that's absolutely fine. That's not stealing, that's just sharing. Um, But what we'll do is find a form of words that fits for us. And the first few times you try and have that conversation, it feels terribly clunky and uncomfortable. But, you know, eventually it becomes almost like a behavioural experiment in cognitive therapy where you try out something that you know is a good thing, but you feel it will be scary for you. Mm. And actually it turns out to be a really great thing and not nearly as difficult as you thought it was going to be. So trusting yourself to have that conversation I think is a really important thing. We need to start to think about dying. We need to start to talk about dying as communities, as families, not necessarily just as professionals but just as people and not give this, not, not keep a secret that isn't, isn't allowed to be spoken. Um, there's a lot spoken about where we should die Um, and people always say that they want to die at home when they're well um, and frequently change their minds when they're less well. So there's some really lovely uh, research was in palliative medicine in October of um, 2018 from around here looking at what it is that makes people feel safe when they're dying and I use the phrase safe a lot when I'm talking um, to people about 
dying? How, how are we going to help you to die feeling safe? And it turns out that it's not about where we are at all. It's about having our important people around us um, and having our own authority to be ourselves respected during that time. And we feel that's most likely to happen at home, which of course it is. But you can reconstruct that. It doesn't really matter what room or what institution that bed is in. It's the attitude of the carers around you that makes a difference. And that's a, that's a really lovely piece of research from, from New Zealand. And as I'm listening more and more to uh, Maori tradition and beliefs around dying, I realise that that research was always going to come out of New Zealand because it's been informed by the traditions of more than one component of the population, really. So helping people to feel whole, helping people to feel that they're in charge is probably the most important thing we can do. And that's very like encouraging a mum during giving birth, isn't it? We've mm. come full circle now, back to the, the parallels between birth and death. Absolutely. Thank you, Catherine. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you very much. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, fill in the Reflection of Learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. There's also a list of references that are available here. Thank you for listening.